welcome back to Politics Relax podcast. As you can see, we're here with um, another interview. We've got uh, Sarah Olney, who's the Member of Parliament for Richmond Park, as well as the Transport, Business, Energy, Industrial Spokesperson for the Liberal Democrats. Uh, so what? thank you for joining us here, firstly. Um, but I'd like to start um, with um, how do you think the Liberal Democrats are going to rebuild after the 2019 election? Um, well, it's nice to be here, firstly. Thank you very much for having me. That's a really good question. And I think um, I think it's a question we'll answer quite differently today than how we might have done uh, a year ago. Uh, obviously, this massive, unprecedented pandemic has, has sort of intervened. And in a way, it's it's been a very strange year for lots and lots of different reasons. But it's also been a very strange year for politics, because what's happened is that pandemic and news about the pandemic has really squeezed out every other aspect of political engagement that we might have had, certainly from my perspective. I found that my job as an MP over the last year has very much been about trying to get answers for local people, trying to understand the impact it's having on in their, having on their lives. Um, and that that's meant that some of the bigger questions, some of the other things that are still going on despite the pandemic have not had the attention that they might have had. And certainly you see in the media, if you're watching the evening news on the telly or uh, reading any of our online newspapers, the headlines are all about the pandemic. Right now it's all about vaccinations and about travel quarantine and things like this. Uh, a month ago, it was all about the, you know, frankly terrifying increasing cases we were seeing right across the country. Um, and th there's obviously an excellent reason for that. It has a very, very tangible impact on everybody's lives. I see you all there uh, in your bedrooms. You should be at school. <laughs> and that's obviously the, the, the immediate impact it's having, not just on you, but obviously on your parents as well. It's having the same impact here. My, I don't know what my children are doing right now, but it's quite noisy. So sorry if you can hear them. Um, and so it's very understandable that people are very, very focused on this issue and they want to know what the future holds. And it's really difficult to give people um, the kind of like answers that they're looking for because everything is so unknown and we've not been in this situation before so um so that that's really sort of swerved everybody uh, off track and it's very difficult i think not just for the liberal democrats but also for the labor party to have um a real political impact at this time because i think the absolute priority is getting to the end of this pandemic um and while we can as opposition parties challenge elements of how the government are handling the pandemic and we have um what we're all shooting for is a time when the pandemic is no longer a political issue because you know we want it to be over we want it to be done with um and we want to get on to talking about other things so there isn't much political value really in spending a great deal of time uh talking uh, it, it, it's not going to be a long-term political issue fingers crossed the pandemic um and uh you know that, that whatever we fight the next general election on it's not going to be on the government's response to the pandemic because we will all want to put that behind us and we will all want to be talking about other things but unfortunately that's all we're talking about right now so that's i think one of the reasons why it's a struggle to have an impact what i think um is emerging from the pandemic and what we will take forward is some of the um themes about how the government are handling it so we've talked a lot over the last year about cronyism for example and that comes up not just in the handling of the pandemic but all sorts of other things um it, we were talking in parliament yesterday about the towns fund for example which has come under a lot of criticism because the housing minister has used it to sort of shovel money to tory marginals and he's got a bit of a reputation for doing things that benefit tories um and and the government's just general uh, slowness to act and their inability to really grasp the seriousness of a situation that I think is a theme that will follow this both of those are themes that will follow this government around you know beyond uh, the pandemic 
So um, for us as a party, um, it's about seizing some of those themes and using them to demonstrate how you know, a liberal Democrat approach to politics is about giving power back to the people. It's about openness of decision making. It's about um, delegating power down to local uh, authorities. And those are the things I think those will have more resonance in people's lives after the pandemic. We've seen what a different strong community engagement can have. We've seen the effectiveness of a local vaccine delivery versus a centrally managed test and trace system and how much better local authorities and local health teams have delivered the latter. And those are all themes that, you know, the, the Liberal Democrats really want to, um, to pursue. I think one of our weaknesses has been a lack of visibility on the national stage. That's partly pandemic, partly the fact we've only got 11 MPs, but um, something we, and, and, and I think the way we get around that is by being much more visible locally. And that's always been one of our strengths. And it's certainly how we've won the seats that we have. We're prevented from doing that. We can't do our door-to-door -door campaigning at the moment. We can't do our leafleting. Uh, we've been actually banned from doing that by the government, which is entirely undemocratic. Um, but uh, that's something that we will really be picking up again once we're able to, uh, as soon as it's safe to do so. And we're certainly very much looking forward to the next round of elections in May. We've just had a confirmation today that those are going ahead. Uh, and we will be working very, very hard in those seats where we think we've got a chance of winning to really uh, to make an impact. That's interesting, yeah. Um, so your your party entered a, a disastrous coalition in 2010 with the um, Conservatives. Austerity affected millions of people and some couldn't get enough food and had, had to start using uh, food banks and some couldn't get temp uh, temporary accommodation. Children have borne the brunt of these cuts and some schools don't have enough funding. Uh, do you, uh, some, some, some feel that your party betrayed those voters. How do you, the Liberal Democrats, earn those voters trust back? Um, I mean, the coalition was 10 years ago, and we are in a very difficult political position now. Um, and the last five, six years have been a Tory government, not a not a Liberal Democrat, you know, no Liberal Democrat involvement at all. Um, the uh, manifesto that the Labour Party campaigned on in 2010 was promising similar rates of cuts. So I think any kind of framing of it that cuts happened under the coalition that wouldn't have happened if there'd been a Labour government is is false frankly, uh, whether the Labour government would have done something differently if they'd won in 2015 or 17 or 19, don't know. But there's certainly not the case that there would have necessarily been a drastically different outcome if Labour had won in 2010. But I think that's to say that's something we kind of need to put behind us and we need to think about what are the, what's, what are the impacts now. And I think, you know, you're, you're building a picture there of voters who feel that they've been uh, let down by austerity um, but they didn't vote for anything different in 2015. They, they voted for the same uh, governing party in 2015, 2017 and 2019. So the idea that there's been a, a wholesale rejection of austerity is not borne out by what voters are actually doing. Uh, so we need, to, we need to listen to voters. We need to understand what their concerns are now. And I think they will be quite different now from where they would have been actually in December 2019, because we're already in a different world from where we were 13 months ago, 14 months ago. Um, but as I, I, um, I, I think we uh, have a lot to say to voters. We have been the only party that, that uh, opposed Brexit, that voted against it in the Commons every single time. And I think um, once the uh, impact of coronavirus or the, the immediate impact of coronavirus has passed, we'll start to see how damaging Brexit is uh, threatening to be, not just now, but in the medium and the long term, how much it's going to impact young people's uh, futures. 
um, and that that's something I think um, we will uh, continue to campaign very vigorously on. Um, I think the other things that we are committed to as a party, um, and I think in many ways as important as Brexit and even more so is action on climate change. And again, as a partner, you, you say <laughs> your framing there of the coalition was that it was a, a disaster. Now, maybe in, in, in political terms it was, but we achieved some very valuable and important things while we were in coalition. And one of those is real action to move uh, this country away from reliance on fossil fuels towards renewables. And that was something so that we have now our electricity generation in this country. Um, we are actually world leading in uh, in using renewables to power uh, to, to provide uh, electricity. And that was something that the Liberal Democrats achieved in coalition. And that is something that we want to build on, that we think this government should be building on, that we uh, think is an absolutely urgent priority for this country. Um, and that's something that we will we will be putting uh, very clearly to voters at every election that we, we stand in. Um, and uh, we expect, we expect, we hope we will get more support from the public because we are the party that has always championed that particular um, a set of priorities. Um, and I think as well, the, the emerging issue um, that we would want to be really taking a stand on is mental health and um, such a massive issue. And again, as I say, an emerging issue because it's gonna carry on being an issue beyond this pandemic and something that, again, we've championed very much in the past. We wanted uh, parity between physical and mental health. Again, we made quite a bit of progress on this in the coalition um, and we need to keep pushing for funding and training and resources to support all our communities as we emerge from the lockdown. And I think this is going to be the most, one of the most fundamental areas that will need support. Yeah, I totally agree with the uh, mental health point. I think, especially during the pandemic, young people have been affected so much um, by the pan by lockdowns uh, on their mental health. But I just want to pick on pick up on um, your point about climate change. Uh, I'm really passionate about um, climate change, and I watched the climate debate in uh, in the 2019 election. And Joe Swinson, in her opening remarks, um, started talking about Brexit, and to me, that kind of that was a bit worrying. Because I, re I recognise the huge problems with Brexit, but I think during a climate debate, it's important to focus on the climate. And also, do you think your carbon neutral promise of 2045 went far enough? Um, so um, I think the 29, uh, 2019 rather election was all about Brexit in many ways. Um, and I think the point Joe was probably making there is it's a global problem. We need to be forming alliances across uh, different countries um, and that, you know, being a member of transnational bodies helps us to tackle climate change. Um, but there's no doubt that climate change, whether we're in the EU or without the EU, being without it um, uh, deprives us of some of the tools that we can effectively use for, for tackling it. And it also lessens the pressure on the government to, to take action. Um, and, uh, you know, because they're not bound to international agreements. But nevertheless, I think the Paris uh, climate treaty is the most important one and we are still bound by that whether we're in the EU or not um, uh, so um, uh, 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 and I think it's just really important and, and I think it is quite encouraging to see that um, uh, you know the government themselves are actually moving a little bit more you know Boris is making more commitments than any previous uh, Conservative Prime Minister has on this 
Um, so it, it is starting to have an impact, but it, it, to me, it's really, really important that we are bound by these international commitments so that it's not a case that, you know, that one can just, you know, backslide from those commitments for political expediency. It's a kind of like, no, 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 you have agreed you're going to do this and we have to find a way to achieve it. And it doesn't matter that, you know, it might be easier in the short term to do, you know, to do something different. This is a long term problem and these are the commitments that you've made. Um, I think with, with 2045, what we were saying there is we think that that's an achievable target, but it's only an achievable target if we start right now and we do the big things now and, you know, that that's got to be about, um, you know, banning petrol and diesel cars, that's got to be about a wholesale switch to renewables for doing our energy, the biggest thing that we have to start doing now is retrofitting our homes to, uh, to, to um, you know, uh, reduce the carbon emissions from from home heating and cooking and things like that. And we have to start that now because, and we can, you know, only if we start that now will we even have completed it by 2045. It is such a massive investment, and you know, we really, really do need to to get on with it. There is much to do in reducing emissions from industry and from agriculture, and those are big infrastructure changes. And we need to find ways of investing in those right now. And our, our pitch is that if we start doing those right now, we can get 80% of emissions reduced by 2030 to 2035. But then there's the long tail, there's the hard to, there's the hard to reach uh, bits, the, 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 you know, the, the, the more difficult, knotty problems, you know, the outliers, that, and then that's the long tail that takes that final five to 10 years to, to complete. So our, our pitch is it is absolutely doable by 2045, but we reckon we could be most of the way there in 10 years. Um, and the difficulty with setting targets that might be, you know, 20 to 30 years away is that you remove the urgency of doing things now. You know, that's for a future government to worry about. That's for some other time. And you can see that really in the government's current approach. They're not really grasping the metal, they're not doing the big things, they're not, you know, really, their 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution that was released just before Christmas. It's kind of, it's a lot of hand-wavy, well, this would be nice to do, or, you know, we should aspire to do that, or, you know, this is the sort of thing that we think would be nice. And it's not, we are going to do X right now, and then we're going to do Y, and that will get us to where we need to go. There's a policy gap, as they say, in terms of what the government has committed to and what's required to get to net zero. And, you know, there's still a lot, a lot of uh, commitments to be made. So it's, it, it's, it's all, it's all great talking about reducing emissions, but um, you and you have been vocal in that with um, your opposition of building a third runway at Heathrow Airport. Um, but you also support the building of HS2, which will have many negative environmental impacts. Uh, surely that contradicts your previously stated environmental policy. No, not at all. And the reason I support HS2 uh, is because um, what we, we should, uh, it, it's an, a fundamental part to encouraging people to swap from making internal flights. There is really no reason in the, on an island the size of Great Britain why people should need to fly, for example, from London to Manchester. And yet people do. And the reason that they do is because of lack of capacity on our railways. So it's not just about it being a high speed link. It's about there being enough trains running from London to Manchester to make it a viable alternative or London to Birmingham to flying. And that's why we support HS2, because in order to meet our net zero carbon, we need to reduce the number of flights. And what we can do about that as a country is to make flying an uneconomic alternative to taking the train. And that's why I support HS2, or indeed taking the car, 
you know, there's an awful lot of driving between London and Manchester, but a really, or, or London and Birmingham, but a really good train line uh, and affordable tickets. I mean, that's the biggest barrier to a lot of people. It shouldn't be cheaper to fly, but it is. Um, and that's why I support the, the, the building of HS2. I think there's there's better thing, at the, at the, so far the implementation has been really poor. Uh, and certainly, you, you know, you raise some of the environmental impacts. Uh, I think more could be done to mitigate those. But in terms of the long term, getting to net zero, having uh, greater capacity on our railways is absolutely essential. Uh, so Hammersmith Bridge has been um, closed since April 2019. Uh, it it affects many people's commute into work and 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 and, school, and into school. So, how can you, uh, the the MP for Hammersmith and Grant Shapps, resolve this issue and get it open again? Well, that is an excellent question. All I can say is that some of us are working extremely hard to to help make that happen. I've been I have regular conversations with, as you say, the MP for Hammersmith, uh, Andy Slaughter, also uh, Ruth Cadbury for Brentford and Isleworth, and Fleur Anderson for Putney. All all our communities are massively impacted by the closure. We are working very hard on a solution, but at the moment, I'm afraid we're getting really ground down. Um, the Department for Transport are not really responding to our calls for a solution. One, the, I, the, the biggest barrier is the fact that it will cost 160 million to properly fix, which is far in excess of what any other bridge anywhere ever has cost. And that's because it's a grade two listed structure. So that I think is, is creating a huge barrier. The uh, responsibility for the bridge uh, lies with Hammersmith and Fulham Council, and there is no way they have that kind of money. And at the moment, we just seem to be stuck in this kind of argy-bargy, for want of a better phrase, between Hammersmith and Willem Council and the DFT, and it's all political, which is incredibly frustrating. Um, uh, but just we just keep going because what I am extremely concerned about is if I don't get a commitment from the DFT at some stage that they will fund or find some mechanism for funding the repairs to the bridge. I've got a whole community there in North Barnes who rely on being able to access Hammersmith for shopping for their, their workplace, their doctors, all sorts of things, and they will be really cut off. And I am constantly trying to impress upon the DFT what the impact of not resolving this problem is going to be on thousands of people. Uh, for a lot of people, the impact they see is just in increased congestion, which is obviously terrible. But for that particular community in North Barnes, the impact is much more profound. And I am so frustrated that the DFT are not engaging on this issue and they are not, taking the steps they need to take to really help help us to sort this out. With the coronavirus pandemic uh, bringing the travel industry to its knees and many in the travel sector feeling ignored by the government in the need of the greater good, uh, what pieces of legislation would you and the Liberal Democrats introduce to rebuilding the travel industry during and after the pandemic? <laughs> well, I think the easiest thing would be to rejoin the customs union, uh, the single market, reintroduce freedom of movement, because that would reduce a lot of the barriers that travellers are going to experience when they are uh, back up and running. I mean, I, I really want to see a focus from the government on um, on supporting our, our travel industry. And I know, obviously, for reasons we've already covered, I'm not keen to see an expansion in flights, but we're an island nation and we do need a strong aviation industry to maintain those links with the rest of the world. So I would have liked to have seen more help for the aviation industry earlier in this uh, pandemic. But what I really wanted to see is um, 
strings attached to that. I want to see a much greater um, commitment by the aviation industry to achieving these net zero goals that we've talked about, to doing far more to be uh, to reduce carbon. Um, we've actually passed some legislation this week, which actually will be quite helpful to helping the aviation industry through the pandemic. Um, some fairly technical stuff around slots and so on. Um, and I think we want to see better, more flexible legislation in the future around, you know, which, uh, how slots are used at our airports and, and, and what, what links are there. I really want to see aviation, as I said, you know, um, uh, related to what I was saying about HS2, investing in international routes from our regional airports to really help boost some of those, uh, some of our regional economies and to build their links uh, internationally, as I say, I think that's much more important either than expanding Heathrow to give more air, airport capacity in the southeast where there already is a lot. Um, and uh, in terms of, as I say, international links, just to kind of discourage some of the domestic flights. But um, I think, you know, again, it's kind of we, we, I think we need we need time to see how COVID impacts, uh, you know, some of our long term behavior. What I do know is there will be a massive demand for holidays next summer if not this summer and i think this summer could well be a golden opportunity for the domestic tourist industry and i really want to see the government support that uh, to the to the extent as uh, you know, the absolute extent possible uh, not least because there will be a lot of industries that will need uh, you know opportunity to make up from the losses of last year but likewise a lot of opportunities in international travel next year and again let's let's really make sure that we can uh, make make the best possible use of that um, so, on the um, 13th of January, in, in, in uh, the, the Richmond and, and Twickenham Times reported groups of people not social distancing in Richmond. Would you support harsher fines for co on, on COVID uh, rule breakers? And if not, how do we curb COVID? Uh, how do we curb? Well, I, I really wouldn't. I know what you're asking. Um, I, I wouldn't because I don't think that um, necessarily a fines regime is very effective. Um, it's, you know, what we need is for everybody to be conscious of what they're doing all the time. By the time the fine is levied, the, um, the infection could have already, you know, got around another five or six people. Um, and it's kind of like it, what we need to be effective is people not infecting each other. And I think, so what I was pushing for was more signage, you know, and more, more prompts to remind people. My experience has been that 99% of people uh, want to do the right thing, understand the importance of doing it. They just need to be told and reminded what the right thing to do is. And it is far more important that people keep their distance and wear a mask than it is that people, you know, worry about touching things or whatever. This is an airborne disease and breathing on somebody can, you know, infect them. And that's, you know, people just need to remember and to understand. And, you know, certainly I'm sure I've been guilty of breaching the two meter rule every time yeah. I go to the supermarket, but that's because I've been distracted by trying to work out where the cheese is and not because I'm not thinking about it. So I just need that constant reminder, <laughs> whether it's from people around me or from signs in the supermarket or whatever it is. And I, I think that's a much more effective way of getting people to comply with um, the regulations because it's not, and it's not about punishing people for not doing it after they've forgotten, after it's too late, it's reminding them you know, before they get to the stage where they might infect somebody. Yeah. Um, we ask every single one of our guests this question. If you could introduce one piece of legislation or a law, uh, what would it be? Ooh, um, that's a really interesting one. And I've been asked that several times and I really should have thought um, much quicker about a good answer to that. 
Um, I think right now the thing I really want to see, there, there's, I've got a million different things I could say on lots of different aspects, but I think one thing I think would be really effective is anti-idling legislation. In my constituency, we have six level crossings. An awful lot of traffic gets caught at level crossing for lots of times of the day. And I just want everyone to turn their engines off, you know? And I think that would make a massive difference to, uh, to air quality. And the, the impact of uh, bringing in a piece of legislation, just to refer back to what I was saying before about reminding people, is that kind of like just setting that expectation that when you get to a level crossing gate, turn your engine off. If you know you're going to be stuck in traffic for some time, turn your engine off. More and more cars are, you know, cutting out engines automatically when you're stopped for any, and so, and I think that's a really positive thing, but it's just that kind of like, if you know you're going to be waiting for more than half a minute before you can move, turn your engine off because the impact that will have on air quality. And I know from uh, air quality surveys done across my constituency, air quality is always worse where there's a level crossing. So that would be my, my small thing, you know, and as I say, just it, it'd be difficult to police the legislation because, you know, we don't have the kind of resources, but just to bring in that legislation and to make people know that that's now the law, I just think that would have a massive impact on people's behavior. Um, yeah, that's that, 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 that seems very um, admirable, I think. Um, I think, yeah, a lot of cars are introducing um, the, the the, the anti-idling processes in, in, in their cars anyway, so that's a good step forward. Um, but we'll move on to a, a Brexit now. Uh, how can a second referendum on Brexit be realistic if the majority of the country still supports it, as can be seen with overwhelming support for the Conservative Party in the 2019 uh, mm -hmm. general election? It wasn't overwhelming support. I think I'm just moving to a different room so I can get my uh, my computer cable. Um, it wasn't overwhelming support. They got about 43% of the vote. Um, and when you're in a general election, you can't say that people voted for one particular policy. Uh, there was an awful lot of opposition to uh, Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister. And as many people will have voted for that um, as, uh, you know, voted for the Tories because they wanted Brexit. Um, we're not campaigning for a second referendum anymore. That's that's gone. That's that was before we left. Um, but and I don't think it's true to say that the majority of people still um, support Brexit. There's been some interesting polling recently uh, and consistently and almost since um, the referendum happened, more people have said that they think um, Brexit and uh, leaving the European Union was a mistake. Then uh, would still support it if we had a referendum now. So, um, I think in a way that uh, um, it's not really a question anymore. There, there's no doubt that there is not the public support for Brexit now that there was in 2016. Um, second referendum is not a campaign anymore. That was the campaign for before we left. Uh, and the campaign was always about having a further vote, a vote on the terms and actually a discussion about what what we might have instead of being members of the European Union and having a vote as to whether that was what we wanted. Um, and because that hasn't happened, we've had the Conservatives form of Brexit pretty much um, imposed upon us um, because it certainly wasn't laid out in any great clarity or detail in the 2019 um, election exactly what they were planning. Um, and I think it remains to be seen whether what the Brexit we have had imposed upon us is what the country 
actually wants. But the big question is, where do we go from here? Is the campaign now to rejoin? Is the campaign now to enter into some new form of relationship with the European Union? I'm not going to waver in my belief that we would, we were and would have been better off as members of the European Union. And I think that we will um, want to continue to campaign for that in the long term. But I think, to be honest, our immediate priority is probably around fixing our trading relationship and uh, sorting out some of the issues we're seeing with trading. And so I think a short term goal would be something around uh, rejoining the customs union, because that will certainly uh, eradicate a lot of the, the, um, the, the issues we're seeing with it now. Um, but I think, you know, second referendum has gone. <laughs> um, and I, I think, you know, it's kind of like there may well have been support for leaving the European Union because that's what the referendum result in 2016 said. But whether the, uh, the government has long term support for uh, its uh, current Brexit trade deal, I think that really remains, to, uh, European trade deal rather, really remains to be seen. Yeah. Um so Oh. So, so can you see can you see um, a return to the European Union for the United Kingdom in the next uh, thirty years, or or do you think it's more likely that uh, we we will shift towards uh, closer ties with um, with countries like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand? Um, there's no reason why both can't happen, but I think um, I think in the medium term, as in not immediately in the next couple of years, but likely with a change of government, we will look to uh, have um, a closer relationship with the European Union. You can't get over geography at the end of the day. The reason that 40% of our exports go to the EU is because it's easy to get them there comparatively. Um, and a lot of our trade is fresh food. And the, uh, you know, the, the qualitative difference between getting fresh food to France versus fresh food to Canada or New Zealand is you know uh, 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 driving it there on a lorry versus having to ship it there on a container so um there is no doubt that in a lot of sectors and a lot of areas that we're really strong in and want to trade with the world in uh you know getting stuff there quickly is is a really you know is is uh, is something that we look for in a trading partner so um uh so i i think it's both um uh and there was there's nothing to stop us uh, having a good relationship with Canada and New Zealand and everywhere else. I just remain unconvinced that so far what we've seen is that we needed to leave the EU to have these better relationships. We've, by and large, we're now trading on rolled over agreements, as in we have preserved the terms that we had when we were members of the EU with various third parties. And where we have attempted to renegotiate those, we have made marginal difference. Um, and the marginal differences will not make up for the barriers that we've erected between ourselves and the EU. So looked at as, as um, purely a trading arrangement, we are not going to win from um, uh, you know, being outside, at least outside the customs union. Um, uh, we aren't going to make up for that with uh, enhanced trading relationships with the rest of the world. Um, and I think that's a position we need to address quite urgently. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Liz Truss, I think it was a few months ago, was talking about the unfettered access to soy sauce. Um, yeah, which comes from um, the Netherlands. So I'm afraid access to that is very much fettered. Yeah, exactly. Um, As indeed is feta cheese, for that matter. Yeah, um, just a final question. Um, would you ever support another coalition with the Tories or Labour? And what circumstances would that be? Because in the run-up to the 2017 election, you recorded um, 
um, support, um, telling Liberal Democrat voters to vote for uh, Labour MPs in seats where Labour candidates stood a better chance of defeating Conservatives. So would you ever support a coalition with either the La Labour or the Conservatives? Um, yes, um, I would. Um, but, you know, we are talking quite hypothetically. Um, I think I think my priority right now is I don't want to see uh, a Tory government win another general election. And I think the route to making that happen is um, is, you know, that both Labour and Liberal Democrats have to make gains in the next election. And they're, uh, uh, you know, I don't know that it's possible for Labour to win enough seats on their own, especially if Scottish independence has happened by then. I don't know if it's possible for them to win enough on their own uh, to form another government, but I do believe we've both got the opportunity to gain enough seats between us that we could form a coalition. So in terms of an outcome that looks both likely and desirable after the next general election, I'm very much in favour of that. How we achieve that, I think, is a different question. I'm not sure that um, voters necessarily um, want to, uh, you know, want, want to see us doing a formal pact. Um, but also, the, uh, it's a lot easier for me to say that now than it would have been a couple of years ago, because there's no doubt that there was very little appetite, not just in Richmond Park, but across many, many constituencies to, to, uh, for seeing Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. And that would be something that I personally agreed with. <laughs> so it's a lot easier to say that now than it would have been, as I say, 18 months ago. Um, uh, and so it, it's now a, 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 a more plausible uh, outcome. Yeah, um, thank you to Piers and Daniel for helping me um, interview you and a uh, huge thank you for giving up your time uh, to speak to us. Um, we really appreciate it and thank you to everyone for watching. Please like and subscribe and thank you. <laughs>